Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, a Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation and Consulting Editor at New Lines Magazine. First off, I'd like to apologize for the prolonged hiatus. It's been several months since our last episode. Um, not my fault. Things have been quite hectic and busy, and uh, the war in Ukraine has sort of preoccupied me, as it has most of us, I, I should say. But that's a very convenient segue to introduce my guest this week, who is a former contributor, a former participant in the show, uh, my friend Owen Matthews, someone I've uh, collaborated with, had the pleasure of collaborating with at New Lines uh, in the lead up to the war in Ukraine and on other uh, weighty matters related to Russia. Owen is the author of a recent book, which you should all rush out and buy. It's called Overreach, the Inside Story of Putin's War Against Ukraine. Uh, prior to that, he was the uh, author of a fantastic biography of Richard Zorgay, a, a character in my GRU book, and I've relied heavily on Owen and his scholarship to figure out all of the um, fascinating little tidbits about one of the master spies of Russian, or I should say Soviet military intelligence. Um, Owen, it's great to have you with us. Oh, you're also a, a the Russia correspondent for The Spectator magazine in the UK. And you are joining us from a very Baroque looking library in your adoptive home <laughs> in Rome. First of all, t t when did you move to Rome? Because I, I forget when this, this migration took place. Uh, I've been here a year and a half, but uh, for most of the last year, I've been uh, back and forth to Russia and Ukraine. So actually, I uh, haven't got to enjoy Rome nearly as much as I'd like to, but uh, I'm based mm. And I see, I mean, those of you who don't have the, the good fortune of being friends with Owen on Facebook, he's always posting these like exquisite photos of himself and his family and, you know, sort of, you know, the Hadrian fountains. And, and I mean, you know, it, it makes me long for a, a, a land and a culture that's older than what, 250, 300 years here in America. I was just in Philadelphia, by the way, for New Year's. And it's a really, I was there with some British friends and, you know, the hangdong look on their face when, you know, the tour guide is saying, and this building was built in 1805. <laughs> That's just meant to be impressive to an American audience, but oh well. It's great to have you on. And uh, yeah, I mean, let's just dive in because you and I talk offline a lot about this war, uh, a war that, you know, we were both in our own way, um, although slightly differently. So skeptical was going to happen or at least happen in the way that it did. You know, I had been to Ukraine in January of last year, interviewing Ukrainians to get a sense of why they didn't anticipate Putin pulling the trigger and going all in doing total war, as Volodymyr Zelensky told Emmanuel Macron on a phone call the night of the 24th. Um, and yet here we are a year later, uh, Ukraine has done admirably well on the battlefield. It's retaken, I think, close to, if not in excess of 50% of the territory that Russia had taken from it as of February 24th. And tell us a little bit about the book. Uh, you, you kind of go back to sort of the beginning, as it were. I mean, where this, you know, the, the, the sort of spark of this conflict uh, came from, Putin's design his, you know, I mean, you sort of tease out how many people in Russia, um, including high ranking officials in his own government, and arguably even his own foreign minister, were completely caught off guard by this contingency. I mean, they didn't think that that this would happen. Tell us a little bit about the reporting that went into the book. Uh, you've been to Russia, obviously, you've also been to Ukraine. And uh, what are your findings of how this all came into being? Well, the unique selling point of the book um, was to unravel the mystery uh, of the war. And um, there, I'm sure there's going to be lots of fantastic books of reportage about how the war unfolded inside Ukraine from my brilliant colleagues who are working there right now. But for me, um, that's not the mystery. The mystery is inside Russia. It's not inside Ukraine. It's like, what happened in the Kremlin? How did the Kremlin get to this 
point where it decided that now was the moment to launch a full-scale attack on Ukraine and why that they thought that was a good idea. And there's a very simple and slightly glib answer is that they fought the war, Putin fought the war, launched the war for the same reason that any authoritarian leader launches any war, and that is because he thought he could win it. So, um, which leads to another question is, um, you know, was he crazy? You know, is he, you know, unbalanced? Is he of unsound mind? And I think actually not. Uh, strangely enough, um, I think actually what Putin is and was fantastically badly informed. Mm. He's, you know, lied to. He basically, because the assumptions that led him to the war were logical in his own terms, but just based on false premises. And the classic example of that is um, he, uh, Putin, and the entire Russian elite, one million percent convinced that the Americans precipitated a coup in February 2014 in order to depose the and people call uh, Vladimir Viktor Yanukovych pro-Russian, but I mean, you know, there were some questions about that. But anyway, the, let's call Yanukovych the pro-Russian president. And if you think that that is true, that Victoria Newland, the then Assistant Secretary of State, by handing out some biscuits and handing out some bribes, can topple a government in Kiev, if you think that's true, then, of course, Russia, with its far deeper resources and contacts and money and in, in a, uh, sympathetic people with inside the Ukrainian political establishment and security forces, etc., etc. If the Americans can do it, then definitely we can do it. So um, the other, another classic example of a, a logical fallacy is that you know Putin and his uh, the people around him, the very narrow circle of people mm. around him, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a moment. But the the very narrow circle of insiders were basically assumed that the future was going to be like the past, just like anyone. That is how human beings think. That's what strategy is. You think that what has happened before will happen again. Concerning Europe, so in February of 2014, Russia. Uh, February, March, they take over Crimea. And Merkel and all the European political establishment, Angela Merkel and the Chancellor of, uh, of Germany, you know, is denouncing this in vehement terms. This must never be allowed to stand, you know, never again in Europe, you know, bloody, bloody. You know, fast forward 13 months, and Angela Merkel is signing a $10 billion gas deal for the building of Nord Stream 2 pipeline in the Baltic. So the Kremlin, not totally incorrectly, at the, for the time, assumes that basically Europe doesn't care, that Europe's words are written in water. And all of this moral indignation and all of these principles that the Merkel professes to can basically be bought. And that the Europe's dependence on energy will trump, in other words, their self-interest will trump their principles. That actually, sadly, was precisely true in 2015, when the Nord Stream 2 deal was signed. Mm. The problem for Putin was, you know, this time it's different. Yeah. There was actually a major difference in the Europe's reaction to the full-scale invasion than it was to the Donbass uh, partial invasion of 2014 to 15. So the reason for that, I think partly is because Zelensky turned out to be a fantastic communicator. Secondly, the, the US and the UK took a very early lead in arming Ukraine and politically backing Ukraine. There are various reasons for that. Um, but very significantly, the European elites and European public opinion very quickly uh, rushed to uh, support Ukraine. So Putin was wrong in that as well. The third thing he was wrong about is he assumed that his military was infinitely superior to the Ukrainian military. You know, was that just, you know, hubris? Was that just sort of, you know, Russian BS? No, he actually had quite a good reason for thinking that because there were direct military confrontations between the Russian regular troops and the Ukrainian regular troops twice 
in the Donbass war. One of them was in August of 2014 in uh, Ilovayevsk, when the Russians, of course, they, they had no insignia, but the Russian uh, regular armor, you know, um, kicked the Ukrainians' butt in Ilovayevsk. And again, in July of, uh, of 2015 at Debaltsevin. So the two times that actually Russian troops and Ukrainian troops have actually faced each other in the battlefield, the Russian troops won hands down. So, uh, and after, you know, subsequent to 2015, Putin is pouring up to 7%, depending on how you count it, of his GDP, whether you count the military-industrial complex or not. It's hard to quantify precisely, but he's spending 7% of his GDP on building up his military. He has Sergei Shoigu, who, you know, for all of his other faults, is known as a competent administrator. You know, he's a he's a good military bureaucrat. Is reorganizing the the these uh, uh, you know battalion battalion tactical units. And it, it's that Putin has good reason to think that you know based on their prior performance against the army that they're proposing to fight in 2022, their performance against those same that same military in 2014 and 15 plus lots of money plus reorganization it's not totally crazy for him to assume yeah. that the russians are just going to roll over the ukrainians again he's mistaken because actually what he un- in fact it wasn't just putin that thought that the russians were infinitely superior to the ukrainians the americans thought it too the americans thought it too the um uh, i mean famously the um um, as the Ukrainian ambassador to Berlin is going to spill the beans, the German deputy defense secretary had a conversation with Zelensky in the first days of the war and said, you know, basically we're not going to send you any any serious weaponry because we, you know, you're going to lose it to the Russians. You know, uh, I, I paraphrase. So Ukraine surprised everybody, and there were various reasons why they did better than was expected. Um, the main reason is the Russians had a terrible battle plan. They didn't or not expect resistance. Um, There's another interesting technical reason is because the Russians basically went in with a peacetime army, every Russian unit is designed to be manned at roughly 70% of regulars and the remaining 30% are conscripts. But if you go into battle without the conscripts, you have a very serious tactical problem because motorized infantry in other words, troops riding in armored personnel carriers of various sorts. What do the conscripts do? They're the so-called dismounts. They're the poor bloody infantry. They're the guys that sit in the back, like the six guys that sit in the back of the armored personnel carrier and jump out of the door and fan out and, and stack up and, and do all that kind of stuff. If you go, if you mobilize the, the army without its conscripts, which is what Putin did at the beginning of the war, you have an army with tons of armor. It's got all the drivers, it's got the gunners, it's got the officers, you know, but it doesn't have the infantry. And that was actually a really major tactical error. Plus, of course, like this is in no way to deny the fact that the Ukrainians actually fought amazingly well. And in fact, those, again, this is not to take credit away from the Ukrainians, but certainly the that NATO training of the dispersed units of you know actually sort of tactical command going down the chain of command unlike the sort of old russian soviet model man portable yeah. anti-tank devices you know bioreactor drones all these things actually made an enormous material difference in the north in the south people tend to forget actually how close russia came to winning because in the north all these things went wrong uh, but nonetheless they were able to take Hostomel Airport in the first day of the war, basically. Mm-hmm. They were kicked out of it after after a few days. But uh, there was fighting within you know, three and a half kilometers of the center of the presidential administration in Kiev. I mean, there were actual you know, troops, you know, groups of, of, of Russian. Yeah. His inner circle was, was given automatic weaponry to basically protect the president from assassination or capture. Yeah. We chatted about was, you know, 
the rank and file didn't understand, didn't know they were going to be sent into battle in, a, in foreign terrain, right? They were still under the illusion. I mean, we have this from POWs that the Ukrainians have captured. They thought they were on a training exercise. All of a sudden, they wound up in Ukraine. Um, you know, th there seemed to be this kind of masquerade or, or sort of camouflaging of the true intent of the Kremlin. And I'm, I'm curious to know, I mean, from your reporting, who in the regime was aware that this was going to happen. I mean, even even the US kind of hedged its bets a little bit. We remember, you know, the Biden administration was saying, it certainly looks like he's preparing for this, but we don't know that he's taken the decision whether or not to pull the trigger. Uh, and then, of course, it the line became, no, no, it's all but an inevitable. So, I mean, who do you reckon was in the know here? I mean, clearly, Shoigu, Valery Garasimov, the, you know, head of the, the chief of the general staff, uh, I would assume the intelligence chiefs, right? The head of the FSB, GRU, I mean, but it was it was a closely kept secret, wasn't it? Well, um, all I can say is, according to somebody who's who had lunch with Dmitry Peskov, uh, Putin's spokesman, who's a personal friend of Peskov's and has known the Putin and known Putin for decades. So this person had lunch with Peskov on the Monday, the first Monday of the war. And Peskov told this person that on that very fateful Security Council meeting of February 21st, where uh, only four people in the room, apart from Putin, knew the full plan, according to Peskov. We can take that or leave that, but I mean, I think we, uh, and who were those people? Indeed, Shoigu, the Alexander Bordnikov, the head of the FSB, Nikolai Patrashev, the former head of the FSB and head of the Security Council, and uh, Sergei Navishkin and Putin. So, I mean, and the Security Council was in 21 of the most notionally powerful people in Russia. Most of them, including Lavrov, only found, the Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, mm. only found out later what the full extent of the plan was which is pretty extraordinary the question is why and just going back to that to, to your question i mean the um the debate is tends to be framed i mean this is a historian's debate now but i mean it's the debate tends to be framed now is i mean between was putin bluffing or was he actually intending to go for it the thing is that actually those things are not immediately mutually exclusive you can actually operationally plan for a full-scale invasion but actually, you can take it, you know, infinitely far. You know, you can prepare and prepare and prepare and build up and build up, and you like bring up the mobile hospitals and the, and mobilize the the battle cruisers from the Pacific Fleet and all do all that kind of stuff, and still not invade. You can actually two track that that kind of operation. It's not so in that sense. It's not like the you know the fatal sort of chain of mobilization orders that led to the First World War, for instance. You know, we're in a different world technologically. The fact that you've mobilized the army in 1914 means that, you know, the army has always, you know, basically started the war by mobilizing the army. That's not the case in 2022. And the fact that he had done it before and, you know, in spring of 2021 um, and the fact that, by the way, they had the, were themselves constantly, they being the, you know, the Kremlin, were themselves vehemently denying they were going to do it and actually seem to be getting so far with their diplomacy because the very last thing that Macron said and that his last conversation pre-war with Putin, which was celebrated by Macron's team, it's been reported by Le Monde, you know, from people within, they were, you know, sort of like high-fiving each other after that Macron-Putin conversation, just like two days before the beginning of the war. 
where the offer on the table from Macron was to arrange a summit with Macron and Biden the, the, with you know the key uh, you know, players in order to quote unquote you know discuss European security architecture. Right. I mean that's pretty damn good, right? I mean that's really a, that would have been a great result for Putin. And of course, you know, like uh, as as Henry Kissinger said about PLO, you know, Putin has never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Right. You know, he was he was in such a sweet spot just before the war. You know, Zelensky was basically admitting that he was he was willing to let Crimea go. Yeah. He was basically willing to admit that Ukraine would not join NATO. Macron and Biden are talking about, you know, making nice about European security architecture. I mean, that was great. Everything went right for Putin. And then he started the war and, you know, completely destroyed. Well, but also this this failure of of appreciating facts on the ground um, and having proper intelligence. I mean, look, you know, NATO and the United States had been training up the Ukrainian armed forces since 2010, officially, right? But it really got into high gear after Crimea and Donbass. The, the Brits were doing all kinds of security assistance programs with the Ukrainians, which arguably catalyzed the decision to have to neutralize the situation now as opposed to later when Ukraine became too powerful, even though arguably it was powerful enough to withstand the invasion and regime change. But Ask anybody in American statecraft, there had been no forward momentum for Ukraine joining NATO uh, since the prospect was mooted. I think, was it Bucharest in 2008? I, I forget. I mean, you know, George W. Bush mentioned it, but it was not, there was no plan of action. There had been nothing in the works diplomatically to accelerate this. And indeed, I mean, after Crimea and Donbass, it was all over but the shouting, really. Uh, there, there was no plan in place. And yet, we can parse this as well. Is this sort of Russian propaganda designed to make us think that NATO planting its flags too close to the periphery, if not even the border of Russia, was the reason for this war? Or is that just kind of the excuse or the, the pretext given. But this was not in the offing, right? Uh, Putin could have arguably regained Ukraine as a client state using all of the means at his disposal from the past, um, bribery, influence operations, intelligence, skullduggery, you know, essentially state capture without any kind of kinetic military operation. And yet here he decides to go all in and, and try to conquer the country. And and the other point I, I wanted to raise, and I'm, I'm curious to hear your feedback. I know that the Americans and the British were very forward leaning about what they knew in terms of the war plan, the invasion strategy, right down to almost the date. And we can actually make the case that the date only changed because of the steady drip drip of intelligence, which made its way into the New York Times and CNN and so on, that it kind of discombobulated the schedule. But this intelligence, or at least a good portion of it, was shared with NATO member states, including Germany, including France. And yet the conclusions they drew seem to be markedly different from the Anglo-American uh, team. And that goes to your point that perhaps they did not read capability as intent, right? They thought this could all be some grand bluff. This could all be some elaborate exercise in order to, you know, in, in effect, gunboat diplomacy to extract the maximum number of concessions from the West as possible. I mean, what do you make of that? Because again, this is a rare case. And a, a lot of us in media who remember the lead up to the Iraq war, even though that's been slightly mischaracterized by revisionists, uh, and there was definitely a, an element coming from inside US intelligence saying Saddam does not have WMD and, and this is all being overcooked and politicized. However, we do remember this, essentially, the conventional wisdom has that the IC got it so badly wrong. And it led America to go to war and I mean, spend trillions of dollars of money it, it didn't need to. And yet in this case, America got it 
pretty precisely correct. And the question is, A, how? And B, you know, why didn't anybody else believe them? I mean, was it still the legacy of the last 20 years or was it a matter of, of interpreting data differently, drawing different conclusions from how, I don't know, CIA, NSA, FBI, the, the totality of the American intelligence community drew them? Uh, well, I mean, in this, in the analogy, if, if, we're, if we're drawing analogies to the Iraq war, if um, the, uh, the situation that the, the Bob Woodward described so brilliantly in, in his plan of attack of, you know, the closed bubble thinking and bad information and the intelligence community, you know, basically telling bosses what they wanted to hear, um, it applies to Russia. I mean, groupthink is not solely a Kremlin problem. It happens in democracies too. We saw it in the Bush White House. But um, to the wider question about the American intelligence, I mean, one of my uh, friends, um, who I spoke to speak to quite often, uh, is a, a close aid of uh, Boris Johnson, or was a close aid of Boris Johnson, um, both at the Foreign Office and at Downing Street. He was literally in the next room when all this was happening. So the question was, um, it wasn't that the intelligence was not believed, it wasn't that it was underestimated. But the point was, um, what actually was the intelligence? And now we know from you know brilliant uh, forensic Washington Post reporting of what Mark Milley told Biden and what the nature of the intelligence was, as far as we can tell, it was that Russia had a major operational plan for an invasion. That was the concrete thing that was known in some considerable detail. And the gap in interpretation is, you know, once again, about political will. And the reason why the, the Ukrainians, many Europeans, myself, believed that Putin would not do it was because it makes no sense to do it. And this leads back to the first part of your question about NATO. So obviously there's a tremendous number of people, a lot of Republicans, um, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and so on, um, you know, a lot of sort of wing nuts in the UK, Peter Hitchens and so on, you know, have a, constructed an, a, a narrative whereby, you know, this war was all provoked by NATO. And there's, uh, as you will remember from your close reading of my detailed treatment of this in my book, there is a the fundamental flaw. There's a sort of foolishness about this debate about what whether Putin, whether NATO provoked this war, quote unquote. And it's just one of scale because what if you run down the list of like all the awful things that that NATO did? They engaged in a partnership for peace with Ukraine, and then it's sort of in 2008, and then it sort of goes on. You know that Trump's phone call with Zelensky, you know, blackmailing him, you know, sort of Zelensky over the military aid, you know, training the Ukrainian military. Yes, that all happened. Well, that all happened. But look at the money. How little money was spent. That entire package that Biden and Zelensky are talking about is worth $40 million. In the end, that year, Ukraine got $200 million. Like, woo, the United States, hello, spends $2 billion every day 200 million is literally it's sofa change so if you know so, so the fundamental idiocy of all the uh, of of all the blame nato crowd in the west and also the mistake of the russians and the fundamental error in russian strategic thinking is not really appreciating how unimportant ukraine was because if you look at two NATO strategic thinking, or to anyone, and actually I had a long discussion with somebody who has actually who's worked at NATO, uh, who's worked as an analyst uh, for NATO for many years, um, including the staff of the NATO College here in Rome. And one thing that he draws attention to, which is not totally obvious, is that there is NATO, the bureaucracy, 
there is like, you know, a certain number of people, I don't know how many people it is, but you know, like a sort of medium-sized building in Brussels, you know, where you have, you know, busy bee bureaucrats whose job is to produce paper and like sort of, you know, little initiatives and this and that and compatibility and stuff. They are constantly producing stuff um, concerning the partnership for peace. But to conflate that somewhat, that actually strategically insignificant noise with a true strategic desire to incorporate Ukraine but into NATO by powerful NATO members, that's just a category error. It's just a mistake. And furthermore, people tend to, tend, tend to forget like the, the basic legal problem is that you cannot become a NATO member if you have disputed borders. Right. Period. Yeah. It's literally legally impossible under the terms of NATO Charter for Georgia or Ukraine to join the alliance. It just cannot happen until you internationally re redraw the borders and like exclude or include, you know, South Ossetia, uh, Abkhazia, you know, Donbass, Crimea, you know, Transnistria, all this stuff, all this like sort of post Soviet mess of the borders. You cannot join. So, literally, the whole paranoia of the Russian leadership. Um, is based on a complete fallacy. Uh, it has to be said it's a fallacy that the West didn't really sufficiently discourage, and you can definitely lay that at the door of the West. The Jens Stoltenberg, I think, certainly overstated plausibility of Ukraine eventually joining NATO, did, you know, sort of glossed over the fact that they'd have to actually redraw the international borders, you know, back at the Bucharest Summit in 2008. You know, the, NATO, right. I think, certainly, you know, didn't do enough to dampen down the hopes uh, of those potential members. But people also tend to forget that, you know, how weak support was in Ukraine for NATO membership before 2014. In fact, I mean, it was actually, you know, by no means a majority of people. Well, and also, and I mean, how, how sympathetic much of the Ukrainian population was still to Russia, and I don't just mean in occupied Donbass and Crimea, um, but prior to... Yeah. You know, Euromaidan, I mean, like I say, the, the Russians still wielded a great deal of influence in this country, um, and they weren't seen as an enemy. I mean, in fact, people also forget, I mean, you mentioned Yanukovych is now characterized as the pro-Putin or the pro-Russian sort of client or, or satrap. But at the time, the, yeah. he campaigned on the signing the association agreement, the party of regions flag. Right was intertwined with the European Union flag during that that whole campaign cycle uh, before prior to the election. So for some reason, Putin let him do that. And then I don't know, changed his mind or decided this was a bridge too far and made him a better offer in the form of a, you know, multi, I forget what how many millions of euro bribe it was. But yeah, it, it was, you know, the, the Russians had a lot of skin in the game. And, you know, ironically, and, and we were chatting about this offline earlier today, in all the time I've gone to Ukraine in the past eight years, it sort of said sotto voce, and it will never be said publicly or much less advertised by any Ukrainian administration. But the line I kept hearing was, you know, in a way, Putin did us a favor by seizing these territories of our country, meaning the peninsula of Crimea, and then what constitutes the so-called LDNR. These are, I mean, in Crimea, I think what the population is upwards of 80% ethnic Russian. And, you know, the Donbass historically has been more eastward leaning than westward leaning. These are the areas that a lot of Ukrainians, patriotic Ukrainians, see as kind of the potential fifth column element in their country, whether through force of arms or more significantly, who they would send to the Rada as representatives that would act as spoilers for all the kinds of things that the Ukrainians want to do in terms of integrating into Europe. So in a way, they were all penned up, going for the the jewel in the crown, which is Kiev and controlling the country militarily was 
the biggest folly, right? I mean, because he did not, as you, this is coming back to your earlier point, he did not understand or fully appreciate just how fundamentally transformed Ukrainian society and Ukrainian sort of nationality had become in the last eight years. Uh, and again, even Zelensky, I mean, we, we talk about him as this world historical military leader, a Churchillian figure. But in January of last year, his poll rating was in the 30s or high 20s. I mean, he was seen as just another kind of been there, done that defunct Ukrainian politician with big promises and, and nothing to show for. Yeah. So again, I mean, it, it's kind of a, a sort of the negative attribute of this is that it has contributed to Ukraine's kind of revitalized sense of self and, yeah. and self-confidence. Um, but explain to me, why do you think, I mean, is it just a matter of you know, the boss wants to hear X, we're going to give him only X, and we're not going to muddy the waters, or we're not going to, you know, complicate things with telling him the truth. I mean, we, we've heard a lot of rumors and reporting, you know, about the head of the FSB Fifth Service, which is the foreign intelligence apparatus of the domestic security service, who, A, was a crook and siphoning money off the budget that was meant to be spent in Ukraine in terms of peddling influence and recruiting assets in place and so on and so forth. Uh, but why do you reckon that the intelligence or the, the understanding that Putin was led to have was so just off base? Is it simply corruption? Is it simply inertia or a sense of fear? Or was there something else in play here? Uh, well, I think that um, it's a function of a, or rather, it's a dysfunctional intelligence service. Mm. And Putin relies very heavily on his intelligence services. And when you have an authoritarian regime in every aspect of it, you know, whether it's the FSB or whether it's any other part of the state, you don't get anywhere by telling the boss that something he doesn't want to hear. So you say that... Uh, Colonel General Sergei Bisieda, uh was a crook. There were rumors that he was arrested, indeed. I mean, he was the guy in charge of of essentially sort of buying swathes of, of the Ukrainian elite. Um, he probably, I wouldn't be at all surprised if he did siphon off the money. But the point is that Bisieda is lying to Putin. Right. Bisieda's deputies are lying to Bisieda. His deputies' agents are lying to, 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 to their bosses and so on. It just goes all the way down the line. So, you know, if you sort of, you know, pick up the phone and call the FSB, like, you know, you know, how are the Ukrainians, you know, they're going to, you know, going to react to an invasion. They're just, because they're so busy stealing and their job and you know, their seniority in like the stealing stakes depend on their telling the right story. Yes, sir, those are three bags full, sir. You know, you, you end up with this sort of empire of lies of you know, bad information. But also just going back to your point about Ukraine and about the um, about the Donbass being sort of bottled up. The reason why the Putin administration insisted that the Donbass was part of Ukraine vehemently insisted that Donbass was part of the Ukraine, did not recognize the attempted attempts to declare independence by the Donbass republics between 2014 and 2020. Why did they not do that? Precisely because they wanted those pro-Russian regions in the Rada. Right. That's why they, well, that's why they did that, and they that's why they played this game and tried to you know get them back in. Uh, what changed was that in 2020 it became basically obvious that not really that there was nothing more that Russia could do to push through the Minsk Accords and get them reintegrated back, but there was nothing that Zelensky could do. 
And that's the really crucial turning point of this whole story is, you know, little remembered events in Kiev in October of 2019. What happens in 2000, October 2019? Zelensky does a deal. Zelensky, by the way, he was elected in April of 2019 with 73% of the vote, 73% of the vote, enormous. Um, Zelensky is elected on a platform of ending the war, reconciling with Russia, and basically sort of bringing an, uh, you know, uh, an, an end to the conflict in, in uh, of, you know, reconciling the constitutional crisis by implementing the, the Minsk Accords. He gets massive support. And also, by the way, he himself is obviously a native Russian speaker. You know, he campaigned on respecting the rights of Russian speakers within Ukraine. 73% winning formula. By, in October, he doesn't deal with the rebel leadership of the LDNR. In order to implement the so-called Steinmeier formula, what does that mean is that the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, supervises a vote in the Donbass, not about whether they're going to join Russia, not about whether they're going to be independent, a vote about what is their status inside Ukraine. Is it going to be the same status as before the war, or is it going to be as like a federal status? That's the question. I mean, it seems ridiculous now. It seems inconceivable. It's like a lifetime. It seems yeah. a lifetime away. Yeah. But this is like just three years. Um, Zelensky does that deal that there was going to be a vote in Donbass. And he is prevented from pushing that through by a very electorally small and insignificant, but actually politically powerful um, group of ultranationalists, basically. Right sector, Azov. But Zelensky brings in the founder of Azov for the you know, personal talks. They bring out people on the streets and they say, we're going to do another Maidan if you do a deal with these rebel republics. So Zelensky is basically prevented. You know, he cannot even, he's not really master in his own house. And although ultranationalists actually only have one MP, one member of the of the Rada out of 450, you know, nonetheless, they have power on the Kiev street. Zelensky is prevented from reintegrating those rebel republics. And Putin realizes by the beginning of 2020, you know, it's over. You know, this isn't going to work. We have to come up with another plan. But there's another thing that we have neglected to mention, which is actually enormously important. And that is that um, for the people around Putin, particularly Nikolai Patrushev and Alexander Bortnikov, and with Putin, that's three successive heads of the FSB, by the way, all these people are totally convinced that this is a war of national self-defense, or in other words, a sort of preemptive war to stop American aggression. And uh, Viktor Zolotov, the head of the National Guard, former head of Putin's bodyguards, a uh, very powerful um, member of the Silovikin, the men of power in the Kremlin, he said, Ukraine doesn't exist. It just happens to be where the border between Russia and America lies. So I think in that sense, um, Ukrainians get very annoyed when you talk in these terms, but I, mean, I think these are the terms in which the Kremlin thinks, is that actually Ukraine is incidental. Ukraine is a pawn. They think that Ukraine is just you know, a lapdog of the West and it's being used as a stalking horse for Western influence. And in that sense, the attempted murder, the poisoning of Alexei Navalny in August of 2020 and the invasion of Ukraine are basically to the mind of Patrushev, Putin, and Bortnikov, yeah. this part of the same program. I mean, it's part of the same program because their job, and Patrushev is very vocal about it. I mean, he talks about it in his interviews at length yeah. all the time. He's convinced with evidence of how the U.S. is systematically trying to bring about regime change inside Russia, as it did supposedly in Ukraine in 2014. They, they really think that. 
So all of these discussions about, you know, the internal workings, the Steinmeier formula and Donbass and this and that are actually all, frankly, secondary, I think, in the Kremlin's mind. But but that, I mean, to play devil's advocate, you're contradicting yourself slightly in that even if Zelensky hadn't been stopped by this kind of minority contingent within the electorate who threatened to go to the streets and oppose him popularly, if not electorally. Given the, this kind of ingrained paranoia at very high levels, the Siloviki in, inside Russia, that, as you say, Ukraine does not exist as its own sovereign independent nation. It's, it's a playground for American interference and American shenanigans on our border. Eventually, the Russians would feel that they're going to have to do something to stop that. They're going to have to retake Ukraine in some form or another, whether it's politically or economically or indeed uh, militarily. And, you know, the, the paradox of this when you're so paranoid that somebody is out to get you and that they're trying to foment regime change, not forget about in Kiev, but in Moscow, that they're, they're trying to overthrow the Russian government and conquer the Russian Federation. Uh, it leads you down this sort of blind alley of miscalculation and folly, whereby, in fact, you become essentially instruments of your own foreseen prophecy. I'm not saying that US policy is now one of regime change, but certainly um, one could make the case that because of the invasion of Ukraine, because of this rather surprising and robust Western unity in supporting Ukraine, and I mean, you know, we can get into this discussion later or we can do it now, uh, you know, y Ukraine in a sense doesn't have to join NATO because without the privilege and benefit of joining NATO, it is having a NATO standardized military constructed for it in real time. I mean, your country, the UK, is sending challenger tanks. I have no doubt that leopard tanks will be sent to Ukraine in due course, whether directly from Germany, if not indirectly through Finland or Poland or even Spain. Uh, we're building a, a modern military for them. In the course of doing so, as Lloyd Austin, the US Defense Secretary, put it, degrading the Russian military to such an extent that they'll never have the ability, or at least in the short to midterm, not have the ability to do anything like this again. Weakening Russia to a point where I think Putin's ultimate fear, the greatest sort of nightmarish scenario he could have depicted for himself was exactly this, right? A weakened prostrate Russia that poses no threat to its neighbors and all it's got left is is its nukes. Uh, it is isolated diplomatically. It is isolated economically. It's got a very robust relationship with China, which I know I want to talk to you about because you have some rather interesting and provocative um, claims in your book. But even that goes only so far, right? He is, he is hamstrung in, in what he can do here. And if he doesn't win the war on his own terms, what happens to him? I mean, he comes away defeated. He comes away looking like a weak, strong man, which is the worst possible thing for him, is it not? Uh, that's true. But the key part of that uh, question is on his mm. own terms. So, go and so the question is, um, currently Putin is fighting the war on his own terms. And I just, uh, you know, he's losing it. He's definitely losing it. But nonetheless, inside Russia, he controls the narrative undoubtedly. Right. And if the main constraint on Ukraine is material much more important constraint on Putin is political. So uh, I just had a sort of online argument with uh, Anders Aslund, a uh, distinguished Russian watcher, where he, he, he was claiming that Russia is, has mobilized all of its powers to fight in Ukraine. That's absolutely not even close to true. That's not close to true. Because even if Shoigu's reforms of bringing up the strength of the Russian army to 1.5 million men by 2026, that's what Shoigu is, is talking about in today, that's 1.5 million, that's 1% of the Russian population under arms, 1%. Yeah. Ukraine currently, by my calculation, has about 4.5% 4 4 of its population under arms. That's a lot, by the way, you know, for bystanders mobilization. But the 
in Moscow, I've you know, been to Moscow quite a few times, uh, three times during since the beginning of the war. Most recently, I was there in September and October, including when Putin announced partial mobilization. The bottom line is the war is invisible. Right. Moscow has barely noticed. Once you get around the kitchen table, you know, people are sort of, you know, it's definitely a problem. People are you know, griping and moaning. But, you know, I lived through the 90s. I was in Leningrad on 19th of August, 1991. I was in Moscow in the 80s. Moscow is fine. There is no consciousness that, at all that you are in the capital of a country that's fighting the biggest war of the 21st century. It's mad. It's literally like, you know, through the looking glass. But it's true. The capital of this country is not only not mobilized, the war hasn't even got their attention. That's how remote it is. That's how disconnected Russians are from reality. And obviously, you know, all the things that we know to be true about the Russian economy being poisoned in the root and the crash in, in the oil price and the wholesale gas prices and Gazprom exports being down 45, that's all true. True, 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 true. Millions of people lost their jobs when uh, the, all the Western multinationals pulled out. Also true. But the point is, what I'm, I'm not saying that Russia economy is not hurting. What I'm saying is that Putin has made a deliberate, a very significant calculation that this war should be as unimportant to most Russians as Syria. But doesn't that also afford him certain latitude and, and leverage? I mean, so, okay, you know, we can make a case that if Putin loses the war, meaning if Russia is expelled, forget about February 24 borders. But if it starts to lose Crimea, if it starts to lose LDNR territory, this is going to be a massive strategic hammer blow to him, his prestige and to Russia. But given everything you've just said, if Moscow is quiet or indifferent and they don't care, the threat then comes from within, from his own regime, from you know the powers that be who stand to either inherit the throne after he dies of natural causes, or I mean, he's not going to step down, I don't think, or who might actually try to foment something more aggressive than that, which is to say some kind of coup or putsch internally. You're missing the first conclusion, and that is that Putin can ratchet this up so much further. He's got so much more than that he can throw at this. Right. And, you know, obnoxiously, Putin said, you know, back in, in, in September, like, we haven't even started to fight. But, but if he throws more at this, do we have any clarity? I mean, I, you know, I'm looking, I'm staring at a, a comment by U.S. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman today. Russia will not be able to prepare 500,000 people for another offensive, she says. If the leadership dares to mobilize half a million people, it won't be able to equip or train them. Now, I don't know if that's true or that's American propaganda, um, but I would like to believe, I find it straining credulity, that it's not based at least in contemporaneous American intelligence as to what Russia can do. I mean, it's one thing to throw manpower at, at a problem, but it's another thing to have kit, to have the technical capability, to have the logistics, to have the ammunition, to have all the things you need like cruise missiles and, and air power and so on and so forth. I mean, can we get a clear assessment of what Russia's ongoing military capability is? I mean, because, you know, wars can run for many years, for decades, in fact. I mean, the United States, look, you know, we just withdrew from Afghanistan after 20 years, 20 plus years. But can Russia afford to continue this war for five years, 10 years, however long it takes until Putin feels he has attained whatever his definition of victory is. I mean, and will the mood not then change at some point, whether in Moscow or in the regions? Or, I mean, you know, the guy is what, 70 years old now? Realistically, is he going to be in power? He could be in power another 10, 15 years. I mean, if he has a healthy state of being. But let me ask you this, because I know you're skeptical that he's going to lose on the terms as defined by the West, which to be honest with you, I don't even know what those terms are because they vary depending on whom you query. But what would be a hypothetical state of Putin actually losing the war as he sees it? 
So uh, the pain point, I think, um, the point at which it becomes really clear that Russia has suffered a catastrophic defeat, I would say, is the loss of Mariupol. I, th- I think Mariupol, just because it was wars are all about symbols, and Mariupol became such a big symbol, yeah. not just of you know Ukrainian defiance and etc. heroism, uh, but actually for the Russians, Mariupol, you know, was actually very. It was really sort of bigged up in the Russian media as a sort of great titanic struggle, you know, where, where you know, the last Nazis fell, you know, there, there was lots of, you know, humiliation of, of, of the Azov prisoners and so on. They made a big deal of it. And in fact, at one point, they're actually, they had, they were refitting the Mariupol theater for a show trial. They were putting in cages and then they decided to demolish the theater. They realized that was a bad idea. For like a sort of Nuremberg style trial of the right. Ukrainian Nazis. And then they and traded the, the Azov defenders of Mariupol back to Ukraine in exchange for Medvedev. Yeah, not who else? Exactly. Uh, so yeah, well, forty-four. They they they, they, yeah, they yeah. swapped like a hundred. But the point is that the um, I think Mariupol is the pain point. But just following on from the from our earlier conversation, because Putin cannot be seen to lose, because that is so politically catastrophic for him to compromise or to you know be seen to be defeated on anyone's terms by but his own. That is why he will throw everything possible. And you asked a question, but you kept talking, so I'll answer the first question that <laughs> was buried in your second question. Uh, you said, like, how, you know, how much can, can Russia throw at this and can they fight for five years? And unfortunately, the answer is yes, because what you're talking about is also true that they probably can't equip them. They can't equip them, certainly to NATO standards. They can't equip them to their own modern army standards. But, you know, to take like a silly example, I was actually, you know, in Moscow a few years ago, shopping for a Siberian a military shearling for a sheepskin coat from the border guards. And I went to this warehouse, which is a former military warehouse, which was where they had these like these big Siberian fur coats for border guards and stuff. And there were tens of thousands of them, literally, like an entire warehouse full of, you know, furry coats. Well, great. You know, the depth of that sort of, you know, crappy old Soviet equipment is almost infinite. And in practical terms, obviously, you know, if you put up a Soviet BTR-1 or a BMP-1, you know, designed in the 70s, you know, up against modern artillery, you know, it's going to get blown up. Those old Soviet 152 artillery and mortar shells, 160 millimeter, 120 millimeter mortars, you know, endless old stuff. But, but the problem is that in any conflict, quantity will always defeat quality at a certain point. You, you know, Horatius, you know, held the bridge with the three people. Okay, but that doesn't happen in real life. Ultimately, you know, you can be as brilliant, you can have excellent tactics, you can have, you know, brilliant morale, you can have excellent equipment as the Ukrainians have. The Ukrainians have quality, but the Russians have a near inexhaustible supply of of just quantity of like dumb weaponry. So then the question becomes, circling back to what we were talking about, uh, to, to what you were asking is, you know, what does it take for the Russian army to collapse? You know, at what point does the Russian army just suddenly realize, like, you know, we're screwed, we give up, we, we're, you know, we're going to cut and run. And um, I'm not sure what that point is, frankly, because, you know, they, at some point that does happen with armies. There have been instances of, especially sort of poorly trained armies, cutting and running. Notably, you know, the Russian army at the beginning of the spring offensive in, or in fact, at the end of the summer offensive in 1916. The Russian army just fell apart at a certain point. But I mean, the point—the point I was kind of alluding to earlier 
when you say that there's this kind of surreality that's been created inside Russia, at least in you know the major metropolitan areas where the elites and the well-off inhabit, that this war doesn't exist, that it's some kind of faraway conflict. It's it's not a fight for Russia's self-image, much less even an existential struggle for this regime, et cetera, et cetera. Timothy Snyder makes an argument that, I mean, and perhaps this term doesn't do justice to the, the current system. And it's a term that I've heard for many years, and I, I find it's subject to diminishing returns on its uh, semantic value. But this idea of a postmodern dictatorship where what is actually occurring, the reality is constructed by the regime itself. And, you know, one day we're at war against neo-Nazism. The next day we're at war against Satanism. The next day we're at war against LGBTQ and, you know, those who seek to cancel J.K. Rowling and et cetera, et cetera. Could Putin not just decide that he needs to just change the channel, dress up whatever calamitous military defeat he has suffered on in Ukraine as some form of victory, sell that to a population that, as you point out, doesn't give a fuck or at least is not seen to be caring very much about this conflict. I mean, isn't the threat from within, I can appreciate. And certainly, I mean, look, you know, it got to a point where I'm more interested in what the Russian mill bloggers and the ultraists, including Igor Girkin, have to say about the how sideways this thing has gone for the Russian military. Because say what you will about them, you know, some awful people, in, G in Girkin's case, a, a now convicted in absentia war criminal. However, they're pretty gimlet-eyed and they're pretty objective. That I see as a, as a more credible threat to Putin, right? The ultra-nationalists in Russia, the real hawks who think he should have dropped a tactical nuke already, or, or you know, he should be bombing Warsaw and Brussels and London and etc. But in terms of the, the broader population, if he were to pull out tomorrow, how deleterious to his regime would that be? I mean, I don't see there being an uprising in the streets denouncing him and saying you have squandered the glory and you know patrimony of Holy Mother Russia. I just I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, Owen. I mean, you you've been there, but it just that doesn't exist in the constituency, right? You're completely right. And actually, that situation begs several questions. So what are you right about? Um, there is no significant domestic opposition to the war. Uh, I mean, certainly a vocal domestic opposition. The, the most vocal, ironically, domestic opposition, as you have uh, or, or critical voices, not really opposition, but the extreme right wingers, as you rightly point out. And Putin could basically walk away and, you know, leave this where it is. And in fact, he could have very easily sued for peace or, you know, back in July uh, when he took over the Nyesk and Lysychansk, you know, said like, fine, the, the war is over. And had he done that, by the way, back in July of 2022, he would have put the West in a very difficult position because, you know, how much do we care about, you know, prolonging a war, which is going to kill, you know, more and more people, you know, versus justice of punishing Putin? You know? yeah. If Putin had been anything, you know, we have rather lazily described him over the years as this sort of great strategic genius. But actually, Putin is, a, is an idiot. He just like completely missed right. this obvious fact is that he should have just sort of quit while he was ahead. Um, he's not a you know, sort of Dr. Evil strategic genius. He just like make, made mistake after mistake after mistake. But what we're talking about is his domestic opposition and the extent to which he can walk away from this war. I think that he could basically sell anything to the Russian people short of a totally and obviously catastrophic military defeat like Mariupol, like something really significant. So Hirson was sold as a strategic withdrawal of somewhere that they couldn't hold on to. And they it was even praised by the mill bloggers for you know, saving lives and so on. Hirson didn't land you know, as a serious defeat. I think that the problem for Putin is, I mean, the major strategic aim for Putin is now to reverse the vector of defeat somewhere, anywhere. And that's why Solidar and Bakhmut are so important. 
is that if he, Nisolanda and Bakhmut are really very insignificant. I've actually been to both those places. They're, they're just, they're sort of basically sort of one horse towns in the middle of Donbass. But they, it's all about sort of negotiating, getting to a place where you can negotiate from a point of advantage. And that's where Putin wants to be. And I think the likelihood is that um, he's going to do, I think the Ukrainians are right, there's the very likelihood there's going to be a multi, multi-front spring offensive in order to reverse the vector. But just to put it in terms of your question about his own political options and his position within Russia, he can sell pretty much anything. As we've said, he can sell anything apart from a catastrophic defeat uh, in a high-profile town as victory. That actually, uh, while he is basically playing the war as a low-key military, limited military, special military operation, if he starts to lose the war, then he's forced to kick the war into a different level. He has to make the war a great patriotic war. And that's uh, something that's politically extremely risky. That's pushing the limits of propaganda to its limits, pushing the credulity of Russian people to its limits. It's enormously risky. Mobilization is politically risky. Then you're into like an uncontrollable political ground, which Putin has never been to before. He's not never fought a great patriotic war. And it's not at all clear that the Russian people will buy that particularly because if the economy starts to collapse, it actually starts to smell of desperation. Yeah. Let me um, let me shift gears a little bit. Um, you, you have some reporting in your book on the Russian-Chinese relationship, uh, and you suggest, I, I don't want to mischaracterize your reporting, but you seem to suggest that there is now a kind of permanent strategic relationship between these two countries, something that China watchers have pushed back on. I know the U.S. State Department issued some kind of statement saying, oh, you know, we've we've not seen anything like this. Or, or tell, tell us a little bit about what it is that you've uncovered here between in the relationship between Moscow and Beijing. Well, it's a deal which became uh, rather an understanding that was reached at the beginning of the war um, concerning the Polish MiGs. And there was a proposal by Poland to send around 30 MiG-29s that Poland had in fact bought for one euro each, by the way, from the East German Air Force. They were antiques. They were not really of any operational significance. The Romanians, by the way, had some of the same ones. They been they were scrapped years ago. But nonetheless, to provide MiG-29s to the Ukrainians. And initially, the United States was very uh, positive, but there was a intervention uh, from the Chinese via um, back channels, via sort of trusted parties who they'd actually been involved with over various, various other issues in the past, who had a direct line to the White House. And they communicated a very simple concern, I suppose, I mean, you know, or, or you know, offer. And that was that China, too, was extremely concerned by the Putin's threats on March 17th to use his hints that he might use tactical, nu- tactical nuclear war, uh, weapons, that China was doing everything on a military-to-military military basis to try and neutralize that threat, but only on one condition, and that was that NATO was not directly involved. So in many ways, this is they're just restating what has already been made diplomatically clear through channel, you know, through public diplomacy. But the point about this deal or understanding was that the Chinese drew a line at fighter planes. No fighter planes. China says, sorry, Beijing says, sorry, no. You know, this is where our line is. 
So that in itself actually didn't really do very much to change the vector of the war. But nonetheless, it was actually a very symbolically important understanding because it has actually, from then onwards, been very clear that China actually, its lack of support for Moscow In other words, there's been no military support. Chinese companies have essentially pulled out and observed US sanctions, diplomatic lip service. But no, China has basically left Putin out to dry. But the condition of that is that NATO stay out of direct involvement in in the conflict in in Ukraine. Well, that was the point. So, I mean, I'm not surprised the State Department denied it because the State Department were not involved in it. They were not involved in this particular piece of communication, which turned out to be enormously significant in one important sense, and that it was China, unlike the deal which they had just signed on the 4th of February of undying friendship or everlasting friendship with Putin, actually reneged essentially on that deal. They reneged on that deal um, and did not, they have not supported Putin anything like the way Putin thought they would. Or we, we imagine Putin would have anticipated having signed the deal or given the wording of the deal they signed with Putin on February 4th. So I, I suppose that the big question I have is, I mean, NATO involvement in the war, well, arguably, based on this sort of Chinese definition of former Warsaw Pact country were to supply Soviet model airframes to Ukraine, that's somehow NATO involvement in the war. But, you know, NATO kicking in everything else from M777 howitzers to HIMARS to all the other kit that's been in the field now, including harm anti-radiation batteries. Um, That's not NATO involvement. I mean, those are NATO standard military pieces of military equipment. Um, But MiG-29s, which the Ukrainians already have in their fleet, they just needed more of them. And certainly they needed spare parts to repair the ones that had been damaged. Why is that seen somehow as a, a line that couldn't be crossed for Beijing? I think we're talking about, I remember we're talking about the first months of the war. Yeah. Well, actually, it was highly moot what kind of... I mean, remember, in, a, in the first week of the war, Germany sent helmets. Right. They sent 5,000 helmets. That was, that was the extent of... And I think that actually the significance of the MiGs is not that China has sort of some sort of ide fix of it's, you know, MiGs are the Kaza's belly. It's, you know, MiGs or right. Chinese are extremely pragmatic. But what we're talking about is, you know, they, they are staking out their strategic interest in this conflict right at the get-go using uh, informal direct channel for the like, immediate communication, you know, rather than through, go through sort of cumbersome yeah. diplomacy or the State Department for that matter. But, you know, they're just signaling that this is, you know, we, we have this concern. And right now, um, the most uh, the most latest information I have from my source um, is that, frankly, China doesn't really have any interest whatsoever in the outcome of, of the ultimate outcome of the war. What they care about is that there shouldn't be a third world war. So in that case, in that, in that sense, they actually have you know a lot in common with General Mark Milley's uh, objections and his uh, and his fears in his very first briefing to Biden that we know about at the end of October of 2021. You know the the Chinese. I was, was going to say. Yeah. But I mean, you know, week one of the war, okay, but the goalposts have shifted now. I mean, again, we're we're supplying NATO main battle tanks to Ukraine. And, you know, the next requirement or ask is going to be F-16s, right? Which, from what I'm hearing, is is certainly not in the offing in the the short to midterm, but in the long term is is a distinct possibility. There have been negotiations uh, at very high levels about that. So, you know, it seems like 
and you you just said it yourself, the Chinese objection, such as it was, is is no longer. And the other thing I wanted to point out, and I, I want to know how you credit this, is the rhetoric about possible use of nuclear weapons, uh, the World War III line, has, at least from where I'm sitting, diminished uh, rather markedly in the last several weeks. Um, and Toria Newland, she of the famous biscuit affair in Kiev in 2014, came out and said, you know, basically, Putin was made to understand that if he did this, it would be game over for him. And and I read that as probably the Chinese prevailed upon him and said, look, this is something we simply can't abide. And, and you know, forget about you know, the distinction between tactical and strategic nuclear weapons. If you deploy WMD, that's it. What do you make of that? Do you reckon that there's been... That's exactly what I wrote in my, in my book, yeah. is that the only thing that the Chinese care about is not whether Putin wins or loses the war. It's to keep the nuclear discussion out of mm. it. That's the only thing they care about because of Taiwan, because of the implications of a tactical nuclear war on their ambitions in the Far East and so on. The things that the Chinese really care about. The actual course of the war is much, is infinitely secondary, in my understanding, to, to that sort of basic overarching strategic concern mm. and i think indeed the chinese actually have communicated that extremely forcefully to the the russian the nuclear rhetoric is not to be trifled with much less actually contemplated but that said um the like the so-called nuclear issue hasn't really gone anywhere uh insofar as you know it's you know the bottom line of the war is that you can't treat Russia like you can treat, like you could have treated, you know, any other combatant in any other war, uh, whether it's Serbia or uh, or Iraq or wherever it may be, simply because it has strategic nukes. I mean, you can't invade Russia. So in that sense, the nuclear issue hasn't disappeared. It's just a given in this conflict. There's limits to what you can do to Russia or against Russia. But in terms of the Chinese shutting down Russian threats to, you know, uh, or talk about tactical nukes. I think that's, uh, it's very clear that they, that's exactly what they did. Yeah. Which has, I mean, not by design, but has afforded the West some more wiggle room in terms of its own security escalation. Again, we're not hearing it as much that this is going to, this is an imminent threat and that Putin is, you know, if we, if we supply Ukraine with X, he's going to pull the trigger to do something catastrophic. And indeed, I mean, a lot of the lines that we've been hearing uh, from Pentagon officials or US diplomats about why we're not providing Ukraine with certain weapon systems or bits of ammunition, such as attackums, that this would cross some red line for the Kremlin. Well, I'm hearing now in the last two weeks that, in fact, the US doesn't see very many red lines for the Kremlin. And, and the real issue there is economy of usage. America's own resupply capability for its own domestic stockpiles of these things, allied stockpiles, the cost of, you know, advanced weaponry, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm also given to believe that, you know, a lot is going to happen in the next few months. You know, the Rammstein meeting is happening on the 20th. As I said, they're already getting Challenger 2 main battle tanks and I think an entire um what is it, company or brigade was announced by the UK Defence Ministry. They'll probably get leopards from a third party with Germany's consent, ultimately. Abrams is a different matter. But I'm also hearing things like, you know, the, if to listen to the Ukrainians put it, the Wunderwaffe that they've been uh, champing at the bit for, uh, attackums, that that's very much on the table. I heard from one source in the administration, quote, very confident that the US is going to get to yes on that that bit of ammunition, which is, again, I mean, even rewinding the clock three months, let alone 10, 11, was seen to be 
just an impossibility. Jake Sullivan famously said, we're trying to avoid World War III. But again, the World War III rhetoric seems to have dialed down a bit. So obviously the nuclear issue is ever present in that what you just said that, you know, it limits America in terms of its own direct engagement with Russia and you can't treat Russia as you would Syria or pre-nuclear Iran. However, it does seem the gloves are coming off more, not less, which is surprising to me, frankly. I thought by this point, there'd be a great deal of war weariness. I mean, Biden said in the White House with Zelensky, the reason for not providing certain weapon systems the Ukrainians have been requesting from, you know, the first day of the war is to hold this kind of tenuous coalition of European NATO allies together. Uh, there's a lot of objection, particularly from Berlin, from Paris, about what the US or other countries would provide Ukraine. But it seems like actually the argument has been won by the pro-escalation crowd. I mean, at least based on what I'm hearing, which is kind of interesting. It's true. And, and, actually, yeah. and there's been a very noticeable shift, actually. I mean, it's a, a classic, um, you know, bellwether of this is the attitude of Habeck, you know, the, and, and the, yeah. the deputy chancellor and the, the, and the head of the German Greens, you know. He's a he's a, a green who is like a hawk on Ukraine. It's kind of strange, right. <laughs> but you know the well, the, that, the German <laughs> Greens have always been sort of anti-Russia because of right. energy and, and the use of energy as a as a cudgel, right? I mean, the Greens in every other country tend to be pro-Putin. Jill Stein, famously so. I mean, her vice presidential candidate came out on Twitter and said, we mustn't allow Ukraine to win the war because it's it's a, a net gain for NATO. Russia has to succeed. So yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Owen, I, I've kept you longer, but I knew this was going to run, um, you know, well past an hour because I, I so enjoy uh, talking to you. Uh, is there anything else that we can, um, I mean, obviously everyone rush out and buy Owen's book, uh, Overreach. It's available um, on Amazon, both in the UK and in the US. Uh, I think you can get it as a Kindle as well. And also Owen's uh, prior book. And, and there's an audio book too. It's on Audible as well. Oh, do you, do you read it with your... Um... Your fine English accent? No. Who's who's the narrator of your audiobook? I don't know. Someone good there. So, some actor. Is it, is it Prince Harry? Or um, I don't know if you saw the, the Matt Berry reading the Prince Harry extract about applying whatever Lancome cream to his genitalia and thinking of his mom was that. If, yeah, if yeah. Matt Berry was reading that audiobook, I would have gone out and, and purchased it just for that. Anyway, <laughs> so there's another episode we can do. Anyway, uh, Owen, always a, a treat and a pleasure. And also you can read Owen's um, journalism and commentary at The Spectator on all things Russia and Ukraine. And uh, we will absolutely have you back. Great. Thank you. I, I enjoyed it very much. Thanks, Mike. Cheers. You've been uh, listening to Foreign Office back after a very long pause. Uh, and we hope to keep the pace of our episodes uh, consistent with um, the way things were going prior to the last six months. So every week, uh, a new installment. Um, you've been listening to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, and we will see you next time. Cheers. Cheers.